Turn with me, if you would, to the Old Testament book of Ruth. In the Old Testament book of Ruth, chapter number 4. Ruth 4. We'll finish this little mini-series this morning. It's been quite refreshing to do something very different than our verse-by-verse study in 1 Corinthians that we've been engaged in for so long. Uh, it's been good to take these four Sundays and look at the book of Ruth from a much more broad scale, looking at larger portions of Scripture. It's not quite a tedious exposition like we've been doing in 1 Corinthians for the last year and a half or so. Uh, but though I'm excited to be finishing Ruth, I'm, I'm also excited to get back to 1 Corinthians. So it's, it's been good to take a little vacation, so to speak, an expositional vacation, we'll call it that, as we close out the book of Ruth this morning in chapter 4. Over the last three Sundays, we've studied the book of Ruth as a book of providence. Ruth demonstrates the providence of God at work in his people. In chapter 1, we considered the mystery of providence. We noted that the providence of God is often hard and bitter. We don't always understand what God is doing. But though we don't have access to the blueprints, we do know something about the architect. And when we cannot see the hand of God, we can always trust the heart of God. Providence, like we see in Ruth chapter number 1, leaves us asking why. Why does God do the things that He does in our lives? Oftentimes, the providence of God makes it hard for us and we struggle to find hope and joy when we don't see what is going on. We can't understand and make sense of the things coming to pass in our lives. And in those times of darkness, in those times where clarity is hard to find, it is so important that we walk by faith and not by sight. Well, then in Ruth chapter 2, we considered the manifestation of providence. Though God is not obligated to in any way, He is oftentimes pleased to reveal His providence to His people. By His sheer grace, He pulls back the blinders and He allows us to see the the goodness that he is working out in our life. He did that for Naomi at the end of chapter 2. Although he had been at work in her life since verse 6 of chapter 1, Naomi was unable to see it. Even though God ended the famine, gave Ruth to her, brought her back to Israel at the beginning of the barley harvest, Naomi's misery prevented her from seeing the goodness and kindness of God towards her in these events. But lest we be too hard on Naomi, we must remember that we are often just like her. When bitter providence comes our way and depression sets in, we often wallow in our misery and fail to see God's goodness at work in the midst of perilous times. When we get like this, it takes a work of divine intervention to turn our hearts and cause us to rejoice once more in God. And this divine work in the hearts of despairing Christians It's called revival. God revives us because He is more glorified in our joy than He is in our depression. God gets more glory from you and from your life when you are delighting in Him than when you are despairing over your circumstances. Well, that's what God did for Naomi in chapter 2 and verse 20 when he caused her to see that Ruth had gleaned in Boaz's field. He revived her 
All of a sudden, the providence of God was manifested in her life, and she saw God at work for the first time in a long time. And she saw His glory, and she rejoiced. In chapter 3, we considered the motivation of providence. The motivation of providence. What happens when a revived Christian, full of joy and hope, sees God working in their life? They become motivated to pursue righteousness and to follow the will of God as He reveals it to them. They form a strategic plan and they have a surrendered trust in what God is doing. That's what happened to Naomi in Ruth chapter 3. Naomi in Ruth 3 is nothing like the Naomi of Ruth 1. The Naomi of Ruth 3 has a plan, whereas the Naomi of Ruth 1 had given up. She had no plans. She wasn't excited about what God was doing, but the Naomi of Ruth 3 was very excited about what God was purposing to do. She had confidence that God was purposing to bless her, and that confidence gave her the confidence to do something as well. What she did was this plan that seems so strange to us in the 21st century. But as we noted, when you are convinced that something is the will of God, it doesn't matter how bizarre it might seem to the world, because you're not living for the approval of the world, you're living for the approval of God. Imagine the shocked replies that Abraham received when he was living in the Ur of the Chaldees. And he told everyone that he was packing up and he was moving to a land that no one had ever heard of before. Why are you doing that, Abraham? Well, God told me to. Why did he tell you to do that, Abraham? Well, I don't know, but he just told me to do it. He has a plan. Well, what are you going to do when you get there, Abraham? Have you thought about that? Well, I'm not sure yet, but I know this. God will let me know what I need to know when he needs me to know it. So I'm just going to trust him. Chapter 3, Naomi and Ruth still did not know all of what God was going to do, but they believed with all of their hearts that he was doing something. We know that Naomi said at the end of the chapter that Boaz will not be in rest until he has finished the thing this day. And now as we come to chapter 4, we see the conclusion of this narrative, and as the story winds down... I want us to zoom out and I want us to get the big picture of what God is doing in this little book of Ruth. This is so much more than a cute story about a little Judean family that lived in Bethlehem 3,000 years ago. I've titled this message on Ruth 4, The Mission of Providence. The Mission of Providence. And what I want us to see in Ruth 4, what's the big deal? What's the big picture of not only the book of Ruth, but the providence of God as a whole? Why does God ordain things in His providence the way that He does? I want to consider the mission of providence in two ways. I want us to look at why God ordains things in our lives and the way that He does. Yes, why the twists and the turns? Why the hardships and the setbacks? Why the times of despair and the times of revival? Why the trials and the sufferings and the times of joy and happiness? Why didn't God just save you and take you right to heaven? Why did He leave you as a new creature in a world that has not yet been redeemed? As one preacher remarked about the providence of God in our lives, the road to glory is not a straight line. The road to glory is not an interstate in Nebraska. 
It's a winding road through the Blue Ridge Mountains of Tennessee. Why is that? What, what all does God accomplish through His providence? And secondly, I want us to consider the overarching and ultimate goal of the providence of God. God's providence in your life is so much bigger than just your life. The things that God is doing in your life are only a portion of His providential decree for the whole universe. When God decreed His one decree, because you and I are limited and we think in thoughts. God does not think in thoughts. God had a thought. One infinite, eternal, sovereign, immutable, unchangeable thought. And in that one thought were all the things that have ever come to pass in this whole world, in all the universe, and in my life and in yours. So your life is only a part of that one thought, but yet it's an indispensable part of that one thought. The providence of God is like a beautiful tower, but if you remove just one brick, the whole thing would come crashing down. And we see that in the book of Ruth. Uh, We've only considered the, the narrative primarily in the last three sessions, and I've intentionally postponed a consideration of the, the types and the shadows of this bigger picture so as to save the best for last. But here in Ruth chapter 4, we see that the providence of God in the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz was never just about Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. In the book of Ruth, God is setting the stage for another providential event that he's going to bring to pass a thousand years later in the same town of Bethlehem. And if you think that the book of Ruth is just this insignificant little book in the Old Testament about a small little family in Bethlehem, then I want you to understand that had the events of Ruth not come to pass in the way that they did, we would have no Jesus Christ. In this grand mission of his providence, God sovereignly ordained the life of Ruth in such a way so as to bring the Messiah of Israel right through the lines of a Moabitess damsel. The kingdom of God and the providence of God transcend cultural barriers, transcend ethnic divisions, transcend geographic locations, transcend chronological generations. As God weaves this beautiful tapestry called His providence together, He is working out His grand decree right before our very eyes. And the blessed thing, brothers and sisters, is that He invites you and me to be a part of it. What if God is starting something in your family, in your life, in your church, that will redound to His glory a thousand years from now? This is the big picture view that we will consider as we look at the mission of providence. The mission of providence. Before we do that, let me read to you Ruth chapter 4. So, Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. Then went Boaz up to the gate, and sat him down there. And behold, the kinsmen of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he said unto the kinsmen, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. 
Then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Killian's and all that was Malin's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malin, have I purchased to be my wife to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gates all and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in Ephrata, and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Pharez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, and the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel." And he, he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child, laid it in her bosom, became a nurse unto it. The women, uh, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Pharez. Pharez begat Hezron. Hezron begat Ram, Ram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nation, and Nation begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. What is the mission of God's providence? Let me give you five answers from Ruth chapter 4. The mission of God's providence, number one, is that his people might be redeemed. That his people might be redeemed. Chapter 3, you'll remember, left us with a cliffhanger. Ruth came to Boaz and requested that he fulfill the obligations of a kinsman. Boaz agreed to redeem her and all that was Elimelech's. There was one problem. There was a kinsman closer than Boaz. And according to the law, this other kinsman was first in line to redeem all that was Elimelech's. Now, Boaz could have conveniently left out that little detail because it was apparent that Ruth and Naomi were totally unaware of this guy. But that would have been severely out of step with Boaz's godly character. So in an act of astonishing integrity, after Ruth had proposed, uh, after he had accepted, he then says, but before we can get married, we have to make sure that we are bringing this marriage about in a godly way. And Boaz mentions this other kinsman. He tells Ruth in chapter 3 that he will see to it that this other kinsman will do the part of a redeemer and if he will not, then Boaz himself pledges to fulfill the obligations. 
So let's pick up here in chapter 4, this narrative, in verses 1 through 3. Boaz goes to the gate of the city. It's kind of like going to town hall in those days. It's where all the major important business transactions took place. He went to the gates of the city. And he sees the other kinsmen. Perhaps Boaz knew this feller, knew him well enough to know that he too would be at the gate of the city at that particular time. And he sees him and he calls for him and he flags him down. And in verse 3, he notifies him of all that's going on. Now, just think for a moment what news that must have been to that guy. Um, By the way, your kinsman, Elimelech, his widow has come back from Israel and she is selling his land and uh, you have the right to redeem this field. And we know that Elimelech was quite the wealthy man. So in verse 4, having been brought to speed, this other kinsman says to Boaz, I will redeem it. And then all of us who are reading this story say, no, no, that's not what we want to happen. You can't redeem it. We want Boaz to redeem it. Well, you've got to love, in verse 5, how Boaz nonchalantly mentions the case of this Moabitess damsel. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, right, picture, picture this in your mind. The other kinsman has just agreed to redeem the field, right? He's about to purchase this field. And they've drawn up the paperwork, And just as this kinsman, this other guy, is about to sign his name on the dotted line, it's as if Boaz says, Oh, forgot to tell you. If you buy the field, you've also got to marry the Moabitess. And you've also got to raise up a seed for her. Can't raise it up for Naomi because she's past childbearing age. So you've got to marry Ruth, the Moabitess damsel, and raise up a seed for Malin, who is Elimelech's son in order to buy the field. Verse 6, after realizing all that was required, the other kinsmen cannot commit and fulfill the responsibilities of a redeemer. And then in verse 7, we see the customary practice, according to Deuteronomy 25, verses 7 and 9. You can look that up later, but uh, it was this, this ceremony where upon when one refused to fulfill his obligations, he took off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor uh, kind of as a sign of shame that he wouldn't redeem it. And so he says to Boaz in verse 8, you buy it, you do it, lest he mar his own inheritance. And uh, let's give this fellow the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps he was simply just married and didn't want to marry Ruth the Moabitess damsel. Whatever the case may be, he refused to fulfill his obligations. Boaz ensured that everything was orderly and godly. And then in verses 9 through 10, we have what we've been waiting for all of this time. What we've been sitting here with eager expectation for. Boaz buys all that was Elimelech's, all that was Malin's, all that was Killian's, and he takes Ruth to be his wife. He says in verse 9, Boaz says, Ye are witnesses this day, speaking to the elders, that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, Killian's, and Malin's, the hand of Naomi. In verse 10, Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malin, have I purchased to be my wife purchased his bride. 
Well, why did God, in his providence, allow this scenario with the other kinsmen to come to pass? You think that caused some anxiety on Ruth's part? We don't see it, but do you think that maybe even made Boaz a little nervous? Why not just bring it to pass in such a smooth way without this hiccup in the road? I would suggest to you that it is to highlight the contrast between false redeemers who cannot save and the one true redeemer who does save. The other fellow may have said he would redeem it, when talking turned into doing, he refused to fulfill his covenant obligations. But Boaz, on the other hand, performed what he pledged and came through on the promise that he made to Ruth. Surely Boaz knew this other kinsman's name, but it's left out of the Bible and it's left out on purpose. Because this other kinsman refused to do the will of God, his name has been erased from biblical history. This man has no role in the advancement of God's kingdom. We don't even know his name. But Boaz, who was faithful to accomplish all that he promised to do, well, here we are, 4,000 years later, still talking about him. In this way, Boaz is a picture of our faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, others may promise to save you, You may attempt to save yourself through vain law-keeping and good works that you offer up before God, but when it comes down to actually performing the necessary requirements for redemption, Jesus Christ is the only one found faithful. There are other religions that will tell you you can find peace and happiness if you follow this way or that way. Uh, There are some who will try to tell you that all roads lead to Rome. But at the heart of the biblical gospel is the exclusivity of Christ as the only Savior for fallen sinners. Boaz redeemed Ruth because he was willing to do so even at a great expense to himself. So too does our Lord redeem us at the price of his own life. The other Redeemer couldn't do it. It was too much. It required too much of him. It would cause too much of a sacrifice on his part. just as God in his providence worked it out so that Boaz was the only redeemer for Ruth, God has ordained the plan of salvation so that Calvary's cross is the only way of redemption for you and me. No one else has ever shed his blood for you. No one else has ever gone to a Roman cross for you. No one else has ever died for you. No one else was ever buried and raised again on the third day in order to redeem his people. God has guaranteed that in his providence, just as sure as Boaz redeemed all that was Elimelech's, all that was Malin's, all that was Killian's, so too in the providence of God, Jesus has redeemed all for whom he died. Every sinner for whom his blood was shed on Calvary's cross. He made a full purchase at Calvary and he will have a full reward for all that he died to redeem. He will not lose one of his sheep. Uh, Boaz did not just buy part of the field. Uh, Boaz did not just make a down payment and then promise to come back later and pay the other half. No, Boaz, there at the gate, paid it in full. 
Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross paid redemption's cost in full. He was not gypped at the cross. He did not purchase something that he will not receive. He will receive all that he bought by his own precious blood. The mission of providence is that God's people, all of them, might be redeemed. The purchase was made in full. He owns them by his own blood. But he has such an innumerable host of blood-bought saints that what he's been doing by his spirit for the last 2,000 years is acquiring all of his peculiar possessions. And that's why the church is in the world today. We're on an acquisition mission from the God who bought his people at Calvary's cross. And as the gospel goes forth, those redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ will come to receive their redemption through the gifts of faith and repentance. The mission of providence is that all of God's people might be redeemed. They're not yet redeemed. The purchase has been paid, but on that last day, they will all be there standing because Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Secondly, the mission of providence is that his son might be revealed. That his son might be revealed. God is on a mission to save his people and he is on a mission to exalt his son. And the more he accomplishes the one mission, the more he accomplishes the other. As he saves his people, it is his son that is exalted. And as Christ is exalted, his people are saved. Here in the book of Ruth, we see vivid types and shadows that all point to and reveal the person and work of Jesus Christ. But nothing in this book, nothing points to Christ more clearly than the office of kinsman redeemer. And it's been very difficult for me preaching through the book of Ruth to make it through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and not just launch into the kinsman redeemer because that's really the, the high point of this book. And so let's slow down now and take some time on this office of the kinsman redeemer. There are three qualities that one must have in order to be the kinsman redeemer. Boaz possessed all three of them and so too does Christ. The first one is this. The kinsman redeemer must be worthy. He must be worthy. That is, he must be a kinsman. He must be related. He must be related by blood. He must be what you are in order to be your kinsman redeemer. We sinned against God, and we did so as human beings. It is as humans in our humanity that we incurred our debt. But the God to whom we owe this debt is not a mere man like you and me. The God to whom we owe this debt is eternal and infinite deity. In order for man to be saved, he must have a savior that is truly man, whose humanity makes him worthy to be a kinsman redeemer. But this savior must also be truly God. For no mere man can atone for the sins committed against an infinite and eternal God. Our Savior must be as human as we are so that He can be our kinsman, but He must be as divine as God is so that He can be our Redeemer. There's only one that qualifies. 
2,000 years ago in the same town of Bethlehem, in the providence of God, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, made like an unto man in every way, yet without sin. He is the God-man, the hypostatic union, uh, whereupon deity dwells with humanity, yet there is no mixture or intermingling. One man, one God, one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man and Son of God, truly God, truly man. And He is worthy to redeem us because He took on flesh and became our kinsman. Is He worthy? He is worthy. He is our kinsman. Second qualification, the kinsman redeemer must be wealthy. Must be wealthy. We don't know how much Elimelech's field was worth, but we, we, we can know that it was probably worth a good penny. We know he was an Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah. Most of his assets probably were tied up in his land that he owned before he went to Moab. And a kinsman might be related, but if he does not have the money to buy the possession, he cannot be the kinsman redeemer. We know that Boaz was a mighty man of wealth, and so it shouldn't surprise us that he has the money to buy Elimelech's field. But I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, that the price over our heads was far more than the cost of a field in Israel. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. The price of our redemption was perfect, spotless righteousness. No one but the Lord Jesus ever possessed such wealth. For 33 and a half years, He lived perfectly, perpetually, and personally under the law. The law that we had miserably broken. And He did always those things which pleased the Father. His meat was to do the will of Him that sent Him. And in His sinless life, He earned a positive righteousness. He earned the price of redemption. And He took that price. He took that wealth. And He marched to the cross. And He offered up His righteousness on Calvary for us poor, destitute, Moabitess strangers who had no righteousness of our own. None whatsoever. The righteousness through which God accepts us and saves us and redeems us is an alien righteousness. It's not ours. It's His that He's given to us through faith. As he hung his head in death on the cross, and as he said, it is finished, he was saying that this price, this wealth, I have used to pay in full the redemption of my people. Just as Boaz bought back all that was Elimelech's, so too did Jesus Christ buy back all that we lost in Adam. Everything you lost. Your, your, your communion with God that you lost in the garden... Being able to walk with Him in the cool of the day, being able to know Him and love Him and delight in Him, you lost that. You became a slave to sin. You became in bondage to carnal desires and passions. And He didn't just bring you back to square one. No, He he gave you an active righteousness. You're not just innocent, in other words. You're holy in Christ, in Christ must be worthy, must be wealthy, and thirdly, the kinsman redeemer must be willing. That was the problem with the other kinsman. He had the money. He was related. He was closer related than Boaz was. The problem was that he wasn't willing. 
Praise be unto the Lord Jesus Christ who willingly went to the cross and willingly gave his life for ours. Jesus says of his own life in John 10 and verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. Jesus wasn't crucified because the Jews wanted to kill him, though they did. Jesus wasn't crucified because Judas betrayed him, though he did. Jesus wasn't crucified because Pontius Pilate condemned him to death, though he did. Jesus was crucified because he freely chose to give his life a ransom for yours. And so Paul says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave himself for you. You weren't asking for him. You weren't going around looking for him. No, he interposed himself in your life and he gave himself for you. He was willing. He died freely and vicariously. Why was he so willing? Well, Boaz was willing to redeem Ruth because he loved her and he wanted her for his own. And Jesus Christ died for you, dear brother, dear sister, not because of any good you had to offer him. What did this, Moab, this poor Moabite damsel have to offer Boaz? No, he gave himself for you. Simply because he loved you and wanted you to be his. Husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He loved her and he gave himself for her. That he might present her unto himself without wrinkle or spot or blemish or any such thing. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What was the joy set before him? Hugh. And all of his redeemed. The mission of the providence of God is to reveal his son. And all of our trials and all of our hardships, in, in the good providence, in the bitter providence, God wants us to see more of Jesus. Amen. To see more of Amen. Jesus. Thirdly, the mission of providence is that the earth might rejoice. That the earth might rejoice. Notice in verse 11 of chapter 4, after Boaz takes Ruth to be his wife, we see in verses 11 through 16 that it causes the whole city to rejoice. All of Bethlehem is rejoicing that Boaz has purchased Ruth to be his wife. This is the proper response when the providence of God comes to the foreview of God's people. When we see what great things God has wrought, and we say, surely it is God who has done this, that causes us to rejoice at His goodness and praise Him for His grace. The providence of God is on a mission to further His glory and to increase our good, and there is Absolutely no contradiction between those two things. There's no contradiction between God's glory and your good. 
Because when we see God as exalted and lifted up and magnified, then we see Him as glorious. And when we see God as glorious, that's very good for us. Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Do you realize that the very reason why God has to work things together for good is because naturally things aren't good? When God created the world, he didn't have to work anything together for good. He just created it and it was good by nature. It was good. He created it and then he said, it is good. He didn't say, I've worked this together for good. But our sin has taken everything that was good and made it not good. And what God does in His providence is He takes a bunch of things that are not good. Sojourning in Moab, a famine in Israel, losing a husband, the death of two sons. These things are not good. I'm not broad-brushing your tribulations and your trials. I'm not telling you that, that the loss of a loved one is good and you should rejoice that a loved one has died, or the loss of a job, or, or a sickness, or, or a peril, or some hardship in your life. I'm not telling you to broad brush that and just say, well, it must be good. No, it's not good. But what God does is He takes these things that are not good and providentially works them together for good. God used all of those things that are not good to bring together a marriage between Ruth and Boaz, and that was very good. Paul says again in Romans 8, verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs. Birth pangs together until now. What are all these not good things? Sickness and death and poverty and famine and hardship. There's, these are birth pangs. These are birth pangs. But you mothers here, you know that the more intense that pain gets, what does it mean? It means that you're closer and closer to the most fabulous experience of joy that you could ever imagine. This whole earth exists now travailing together because all things are not good. But those not good things are a momentary travailing. God will take all of those not good things and by the outworking of His providence, He will make them work out for good. And when He does that, the groaning will end and the whole earth will rejoice. So the mission of providence, thirdly, is that the earth would rejoice. And what the church is, what the church is, is it's a little foretaste of that. We're not in that new heavens and that new earth that will forever rejoice and praise the Lord. But we kind of are. As we gather here this morning, we get a little taste, we get a little glimpse of eternity. We rejoice in the presence of our God we get to practice for what we're going to be doing throughout the ceaseless ages. Fourthly, the mission of providence is that we might rely on His providence. One of my chief desires for us, as I've been preaching through the book of Ruth, is that God would use this little book to give us a greater trust in His sovereign providence. And if Ruth teaches us anything, it's that God is worthy of to be relied upon. God is worthy to be relied upon. No matter what hardship comes our way, no matter what struggle we face, no matter what difficulty God calls us to endure, 
He has also promised to be with us each step of the way. Oftentimes, he's behind the scenes. We don't always have a transparent view of everything that is going on. We don't always see what he's doing, but he's there. Believer, he's there. If I can't get you to see anything else, I know some of you are going through things that are just monumentally difficult right now. I want you to know he's there. Just like he was there with Ruth in Moab in the famine. And he was there in the barley field. He's there in your life. He's there. When all things are not making any sense and your life just feels like a road of confusion, by faith we can see the signposts all along the way that say the best is yet to come. Amen. God is not asking you to figure it all out. And He's not calling you to be a spiritual control freak. And I know something about that because I'm a spiritual control freak. I've got to have it all planned out. I have to direct all of my steps. I have to know what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it and how I'm going to do it and what I need to get it done. God has to remind me, and He uses Ruth to remind me that all that planning is fine and well, but hold on to your plans with a loose grip. Mm -hmm. God's not asking you to figure it all out. He's not telling you that you must understand it all. God doesn't want you to rely on your own plans. God doesn't want you to rely on your own sense of guidance and direction. He wants you to trust Him. That's what He wants you to do. Ruth, if you go out and you just glean in a field, do you trust me to lead you to the field that you need to go to? Do you trust me to work this out? To take your destitute family, to take your widowhood, to take your childlessness, and do you just trust me with that and just commit to serving me with that? Trusting me to work it out? Stories like the book of Ruth teach us that this trust is not a blind trust. Why is it not a blind trust? Because God has proven himself faithful and trustworthy. We're trusting in a God that has a perfect track record. Believe the promises of the one who said that he is working all things out for your own good. Believe the promises of the one who did not leave his children in Moab, but brings them home to himself. Providence of God is not a scary and terrifying thing. The providence of God is the pillow upon which God's people rest their heads at night. I have a friend that when people remark about how everything's going and everything's going wrong and everything looks so dismal, he always says, yes, everything is going wrong just right. Everything's going wrong just right. No matter what the world looks like to the natural eye, no matter what things are like in your life right now, you have the ability, and you're the only one, if you're a Christian, you're the only one that has this ability to take comfort in knowing that there's a sovereign God who reigns over all. And this God that reigns over all is good, and He is for you. He's for you. Men may turn their backs on you. Loved ones may forsake you. But this God is for you. He's on your team. I should rephrase it. You're on his. You're on his side. He's for you. It's God that's for us. We could explore that mystery forever, couldn't we? This, This God that we've sinned against. This God that we've been alienated from on account of our own iniquities. He gave us the standard for fellowship in the garden. 
and enjoy the garden, enjoy creation, just don't eat of this one tree. And we chose to eat of that tree and to break that fellowship. We chose a piece of fruit over communion with our eternal God. And from that day forward, he was against us. He's angry with the wicked every day. He abhors the bloody and deceitful man. Yet Paul says in Romans, he's for us. How could this be? Our Lord Jesus Christ has propitiated that wrath. Our Lord Jesus Christ didn't eat of that fruit. He fulfilled that covenant of works. We, in Him, have a right standing with God. And He's for us. I despise, I abhor the prosperity gospel. But God does love you. And God does have a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) But it's not a bunch of zeros in the bank account. And it's not a new Mercedes. uh, And it's not that big house by the river. It's communion with His Son. Amen. Fourth, or fifthly, the mission of God's providence is that the Redeemer's name might be renowned. The Redeemer's name might be renowned. In verse 14 of Ruth 4, the women of Bethlehem say something very interesting to Naomi. Notice what they say. Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that is a Redeemer, that his name may be famous in Israel. It's in verse 14. Look at it. His name may be famous in Israel. Who is the Redeemer? Well, Boaz, of course, right? I mean, Boaz is the Redeemer, the one who is kinsman Redeemer. That's what we might think. But look at verse 15. How the Bible describes this Redeemer. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. I can't be referring to Boaz. Ruth didn't give birth to Boaz. Ruth gave birth to Obed. So Obed is the redeemer of verse 14. Let Obed's name be famous in all Israel. How is Obed the redeemer? In two ways. Number one, the birth of this precious baby redeems Naomi from hopelessness. As it says right there in the text that He's a restorer of her old age. He's a, or he's a restorer of her life, a nourisher of her old age. And we see in this church what joy a little baby can bring. So that, that's the one sense in which Obed is the redeemer. But secondly, and, and most importantly, Obed is the redeemer because of who will come from him in the providence of God. We don't like reading genealogies, right? They're boring. Bunch of names that we can't pronounce. This is a very important genealogy. Look at verse 18. These are the generations of Pharez. Pharez begat Hezron. Hezron begat Ram. Ram begat Aminadab. Aminadab begat Nation. Nation begat Salmon. Salmon, it's a man, begat Boaz. Who was Boaz's mother? A woman from the book of Judges. 
named Rahab. I'll remember her. This beautiful tapestry of grace that God is weaving. Boaz, the mighty man of wealth, son of a harlot. Boaz begat Obed. Obed begat Jesse. Jesse begat David. Obed is the grandfather of the greatest king in Old Testament Israel's history. It was to David that God said, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And that was fulfilled. And the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the true son of David, Jesus Christ. Obed is a redeemer because it was through him in the providence of God that the redeemer of the world was to come. In his great providence, God chose to graft in this Moabitish damsel into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. By God's providence, he's drafted you into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You're not a son by blood. Because after his blood on Calvary's cross was shed, blood was meaningless. You're a son or a daughter by faith. You are in this same family. We could go on down into this genealogy and we could keep on going. And you would find your name written there in that genealogy. And God in his providence is creating a family in which all the children resemble their eldest brother. God was not only plotting for the blessing of Naomi and Ruth. If that's all you're getting out of this, you're not getting it. He was plotting for the blessing of the whole world and the giving of the Lord Jesus. God brought Ruth back from Moab, gave her to Boaz, and gave them a son, which, by the way, she was barren before. That's why they say, be like Rachel and Leah, repopulate Bethlehem. been in Moab for 10 years, never had a son. God closed the womb to preserve it so he could open it. Ruth teaches us in the providence of God. God is connecting us with something far greater than ourselves. God does not mean to touch only our lives by what he does in us. But through what he does in us, he is able to advance his purposes into the lives of others as well. None of you were saved in a vacuum. We have a Savior as a direct result of God's providence in the lives of Ruth and Boaz. And when those women said to Naomi, let the Redeemer's name be renowned in all of Israel, little did they know that God would answer this prayer by using that little baby Obed to send the Redeemer of the world whose name is famous all the earth. Why does God ordain things in his providence the way that he does? So that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ might be famous. And so that every knee may bow and every tongue may confess at that name that he is Lord. For there's no other name given under heaven among men whereby you must be saved in the name of Jesus 
Christ. You must understand that the providence of God ensures that in redemptive history, there's only one hero of the story. There's only one hero. And it's not Boaz. And it's not you. And it's not me. It's Jesus. God is working all things out so that the name of Jesus Christ will be renowned. Yet in that same providence, you and I are the vessels that have the privilege to magnify Christ. And God use us to make the name of His Son renowned. Well, I can't speak for any of you, but I can say that I have immensely enjoyed the book of Ruth. And the lessons that it teaches us, the practical lessons that it teaches us, but of course this beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just close by saying this. If you are here today and you don't yet know this great God, if you are lost in your sins without the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not here by accident. It was not chance or happenstance that brought you here. You might say, well, I'm here because I was invited by someone. My my brother brought me here. My friend brought me here. You might say that. That's not why you're here. You are here because of the providence of God. And it's the providence of God that has allowed you to hear this message about this Savior, about this God who's on a providential mission to redeem sinners. You may never hear a message like this again. You may never dawn the doors of a church again. But you're here right now. And Ruth teaches us that God delights, He delights in taking strangers and adopting them into His family. If you are estranged from God, if you are condemned in your sins, there is one and only one that is willing and able to redeem you. You are bearing a burden that no one else can bear for you. You are condemned in your sins, and if you remain in this condition, you will die and go to hell. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that the Son of God has come to earth and lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death and the salvation that He purchased is received freely by all those who come to Him in faith. Through the work of Christ, God adopts strangers into His family. He takes away our sins and He gives us His righteousness and He makes us like He is. And through faith, if you came here today a sinful Moabite like Ruth, you can leave here a righteous, redeemed child of God. May the providence of God shine upon you and may God exalt Himself in your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for this book of Ruth. And I thank You for giving us the privilege of spending these last four weeks going through this book. May You be pleased to exalt Yourself through the preaching of the Word. Encourage hearts. Stir your people. Revive us again. And Lord, for that one that doesn't yet know you, whose heart is far from you, who doesn't yet have a passion for the glory of Christ, who doesn't, who, who says, well, I know some things about Jesus, but I don't know him. I want to know him and experience him. Would you grant that desire? Give the gifts of repentance and faith. Save sinners. Enlarge your family. Exalt your son. We're begging you to do these things in our midst. We'll praise you. We'll praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, God be merciful unto us and bless us. Cause your face to shine upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.